time to show the world who I really am. Marvel Shang-Chi lands in theaters. So what's your superhero name going to be? Earlier this month, Marvel delivered its first Asian superhero in the MCU. And perhaps more importantly, put an Asian-American director at the helm in Destin Cretton. But it's been a long, hard road getting to this point in cinematic history. And to take us through that journey, I've asked Brian Hu, Artistic Director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival, to be our guide. So get ready to travel from Yellow Peril and Fu Manchu to Bruce Lee and Shang-Chi. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. On this episode, we explore a diverse array of films that take us from Charlie Chan to Chan is Missing to Shang-Chi. We'll also look to the historical context that often led to the stereotypes of Asians we saw on screen and then revel in the rise of independent Asian-American voices in film. And if you think that sounds too academic for you, Think again, because Brian Hu will surprise you with fascinating insights as well as amazing film recommendations. As someone of Asian descent, my grandfather was Chinese, I was thrilled to see Destin Cretton have the opportunity to bring an Asian superhero to the screen. But I'm also fully aware of the painful stereotypes that often came before, like Mickey Rooney's horrendous Japanese caricature in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mr. Go right three. Ouch! And that was in 1961. Hollywood should have known better. That was the same year that Flower Drum Song signaled a small step forward for Asians in Hollywood. But sometimes, Hollywood takes a step backwards before moving forward. Brian and I will look at the best and the worst Hollywood has served up over the decades and play clips from many of the films. But before we begin our journey from Mr. Moto to Bruce Lee, my friend and partner in crime for Film Geek San Diego, Miguel Rodriguez, has a fittingly Asian obsession for the latest Share Your Addiction. Hi, Miguel Rodriguez here from Horrible Imaginings Film Festival to Share My Addiction, a film I caught at Film Out San Diego. It's from Japan called The Dangerous Drugs of Sex. This is a film that I almost feel ashamed that I loved so much because it is a taboo-breaking film, which is also the reason I loved it. Wow, it was crazy. This is why I love cinema. It is something that can challenge mores, something that can make you wonder what it is you can dig about these characters, even though they're doing something repugnant and morally horrible, but at the same time just so attractive in a strange way. The Dangerous Drugs of Sex is not for everybody, but if you're looking for something a little outside the norm, check it out. I'm really excited to share it. I have to second Miguel's addiction and also give a shout out to Film Out programmer Michael McQuiggan for screening Dangerous Drugs of Sex. Anyone can program a crowd-pleaser, but it takes a courageous programmer to push viewers out of their comfort zone. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back with Brian Hu to explore the fascinating history of Asians on screen in Hollywood. KPBS On Demand 
is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie's exploration of Asians on screen, from yellow peril to superhero. Brian Hu has been the artistic director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival for a decade. He's screened a lot of films by and about Asians and Asian Americans over the years. But earlier this month, we saw the release of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, the first Asian superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this feels kind of like a milestone for Asian representation in Hollywood. And I asked Brian if he felt the same way. I could definitely see how, especially if you're a fan of comic book movies and you're Asian American and this is just something that you've never experienced, right? Like you've been cheering for people who don't look like you. And so for that opportunity to come up, it's empowering. For me, like as somebody who's, I haven't really been waiting my whole life for this moment, it still feels remarkable, right? Like it still feels like this is an opportunity to do something different with a mainstream format which often we feel like Marvel has run out of ideas, but actually this is an idea that they have yet to try, and I'm all for it. Well, I just remember too when Black Panther came out, which gave us, it wasn't our first black superhero, but it did feel like this moment where the African-American community in the United States was able to come together around a film that kind of represented them in a different way than they had seen before. With, with a case like Black Panther, it's not just about representation on the screen anymore. It's about like, kids have somebody to dress up as for Halloween, right? Like, like there are um, ways that you can like literally refashion oneself as a result of this film. And like fandom for a comic book movie is different than fandom for like an indie film in that way. And, and so that's a different kind of empowering. The, these are fan activities that have never been extended to like black characters and black audiences. And perhaps Shang-Chi will do something similarly for Asian audiences. And with both Black Panther and Shang-Chi, we also have representation behind the camera. Black Panther used Ryan Coogler to direct it. And now we have Destin Cretton, who is a Pacific Islander, directing Shang-Chi. And does that represent a shift for you as well? Absolutely. And I mean, you definitely get the sense that Marvel slash Disney was looking for, they, they wanted somebody who was Asian behind the camera. And I wonder if they were struck with this difficulty, like, well, who do we choose? I mean, there are all these folks who have come from the indie worlds. And, and what, what kind of skills do we need to do a, a film like this? And Dustin is such a, like a unique choice, right? Like he's somebody who doesn't come from action movies, uh, comes from like, from dramas and, and smaller films that are about like people's interactions. And I love the idea of giving somebody like him the chance to extend his craft. So this isn't just who can we plug in, who's the best for the job, but it's like also potentially who can grow into this other kind of outfit. I want to talk a little bit more about Shang-Chi, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the context that this film arrives in and the sense of an evolution of how Asians have been depicted on screen in American films, not internationally, but just in American films. And, you know, one thing I think that mainstream white audiences may not appreciate because they see themselves on screen constantly in all sorts of variations. And 
For people who are Asian or Latino or African American, there is this real sense that they were not seeing themselves on screen for a long time. So just talk a little bit about what that kind of representation means and what the absence of that means for an audience. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, for decades, um, and this extends centuries if you include other media like literature and theater, which is that Asians in the media, Asians in popular culture in, in the West, is is othered, right? Like you're considered exotic. Um, you're there to, as somebody to conquer, like for instance, for some like white imperializing hero to conquer, or that you, you're here to kind of work, help the U.S. work through its own anxieties about, for instance, immigration or the Asian takeover, especially in like the 19th century, the early 20th century. Kill the white man and take his women. <laughs> And then so you have these figures, villainous figures like Fu Manchu, who are there, like, like kind of embody all of what we fear about this, this world that we don't understand. What have you done to this boy? Practically nothing as yet. What are you going to do to him? Merely inject a drop of serum into his blood. That will either kill him or drive him mad? Neither. The injection of the serum will make his brain mine. In other words, he becomes a reflection of my will. He will do as I command, exactly as though I were doing it. So much better than hypnotism. I see. Another of your oriental tricks. Their inscrutableness is something that's going to ultimately be our, our downfall, and therefore we need to conquer it. So, so there's a little bit of that, um, like the, the vilifying of Asianness, but also on the other end, sort of like an, an attempt to neutralize Asian, the threat of the Asian by, for instance, making Asian men seem unthreatening sexually, um, by making Asian women seem conquerable sexually. So, so these are two kind of stereotypes that we see very much ingrained in American popular culture. Did you send for me, my father? My daughter. Explain to this gentleman the rewards that might be his. Point out to him the delights of our lovely country, the promise of our beautiful women. Now, we had the pleasure of having you introduce a screening of Fu Manchu that we had done here in San Diego. And you talked a little bit about kind of the social and historical context that those films came out. And this was in the 1930s that kind of led to it doesn't justify or forgive these representations, but it kind of gives you a context that explains why some of these images were popular on screen at that time. I mean, they're historically very fascinating. <laughs> like, it's I would never want to say like cancel these films. I think we should watch them to better understand really the minds of Americans, uh, or, or like mainstream America, rather than like the minds of of evil Asian people, which are are never actually represented on screen because all of these Asian characters are played by by white actors. I am Charlie Chan, representative of federal government. The federal government. Miss Hall, tonight you report car stolen. Oh, that. But it wasn't stolen. It was merely borrowed. That is all. I'm most fortunate to have met such charming radio ladies. Hope to meet you again very soon, perhaps. 
And so watching it now, it's very clear that the sort of Asian-ness is a puppet that's being wielded by by like a, a white establishment and, and by Hollywood. And so, yeah, so watching it, you get to see like what was the anxiety that Americans had about this sort of yellow peril, perhaps the, the takeover of our of our jobs, of our of our women by the, the, the mysterious Orient. Films in the 1930s came long after uh, a lot of Asian immigrants were coming in to help build the railroads. But there was this sense of there was Asian immigration at the time that was causing anxiety. And there were laws and, and you know, social issues that were going on at the time that just intensified these anxieties that Americans were having. Yeah, especially if we think about like Chinatowns as a place of like a, a, the mysterious Chinatown, which persists even, I mean, certainly through like Polanski's film. <laughs> Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. What happens in Chinatown stays in Chinatown. Like, like who who knows what's happening behind in the back of that Chinese restaurant? Like, like whether it's like opium dens or mahjong parlors or whatever, or prostitution or something. And, and so they yeah, have this mystery of it. And and one is it like we can accept it while it's taking place in Chinatown. But what happens when quote unquote civil society um, and Chinatown worlds blend into each other? So a fear of of them coming into mainstream Americanness, uh, So that was happening around this time. And, and that also was also helping to justify the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which had been around since the late 19th century. And yeah, during this time, like there were limits on how like Asian people moving to the United States. Like this was part of like American law to consider Asians as unwanted here in the United States. And this popular culture only reinforced that. So there's this period of kind of Asians being depicted as this yellow peril, and it was the combination of kind of the fear of immigration, but also as we move towards World War II, the Japanese are the enemy. But then there's also these kind of weird anomalies that pop up because we have something like Charlie Chan, which is not a superhero, but he's meant to be the brilliant detective a la Sherlock Holmes or something. He's not played by an Asian actor. If you must know, I... I wanted quiet and rest. I recently became a widow. So sorry. Also regret marriage. Very unhappy. What do you mean? Absence of wedding ring denote lack of affection for deceased husband. But it's an interesting moment to kind of contradict some of the other stereotypes. Yeah, this Charlie Chan is also Mr. Moto, played by Peter Lorre. You'll forgive me, but we are so out of touch with events here in Tong Moi. Permit me to introduce myself. I'm Mr. Moto. What are you doing in a country like this? I've been excavating in these ancient ruins in a pursuit of uh, archaeology. This would be the other side that I was talking to. So like they're, they're on the one side, there are these attempts to show how Asians are threats to American society. But the other side is to, to make that threat seem not that threatening by making these kinds of heroes seem very polite. They provide the uh, fortune cookie kind of wisdom. Coincidence, like ancient egg, leave unpleasant odor. But they don't really have very much in terms of charisma or personality or let alone desire, which we expect our heroes to have. I mean, think about like like the, the Indiana Jones type, right? Like you, you, you exude a certain kind of charm and you get the girl as opposed to, you know, you're just sitting here very politely solving crimes. Like like that that, that has a certain charm too, but it's also an exotic charm. You would never extend that to somebody who's not Asian necessarily. Sam Spade would never solve a crime politely. <laughs> no, he would do it with such <laughs> such like meanness, <laughs> right? And, and we would love him for it. But 
for an Asian character to be like that would seem like a threat too far. And then you brought up a little bit of kind of the sexuality of Asian characters. And we have this combination of there's either the kind of evil femme fatale type that actually the wholesome Myrna Loy used to play for a while. He is not entirely unhandsome, is he, my father? For a white man, no. May I suggest, however, a slight delay in your customary procedure? You have further need of him? I have. Um, but you also have these kind of like South Sea romances where somebody like Dorothy L'Amour played this kind of exotic beauty. A hookiakula, a hookimai. A hookiakula, hooki hookimai. That also falls into this weird category of not quite being negative, but definitely falling into stereotypes and kind of not giving a multi-dimensionality to those characters. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, geopolitics is a part of this too. I mean, this is the era where Hawaii is annexed and is brought up for potential statehood. I mean, if you think about like in the United States, if you're in the mainland, part of you is like, wait, why are we including Hawaii now? The studios were making a case and popular culture was making a case that we love Hawaii and we love the South Seas. And we had a lot of like military out there too. And to, so to justify that, we had to make it seem like the Pacific Islanders loved us being there <laughs> and like they were our friends. And I mean, in a very similar way in which like the myth of Thanksgiving has made it seem like Native Americans welcomed Europeans with open arms. These kind of South Sea adventures and romances and musicals were doing much of the same thing to make it seem like, hey, these are just smiling natives waiting for us to romance them, to park their ships in, in, our, in our piers, uh, and we can all like sing and eat food together. Do you see any kind of turning points along the way in Hollywood where you felt like there were moments where things progressed and, you know, it could be from earlier decades or later decades, but do you see any moments where you go like, ah, Thank goodness that finally happened, or yes, that broke the mold, uh, where you feel like the, there are these signposts leading to potential change. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot. Like, even the silent days, a star like Sesu Hayakawa forming his own production studio, saying like, you know what, I'm going to do things my way. But really for me, the, the interesting benchmark point would be Flower Drum Song. My daughter and I are going to give a show. A flower drum show from the north. Songs of filial piety, songs of loyal officials. Songs of ghosts, songs of love, and songs of misery. Kind-hearted and distinguished friends, if the song is good. Give me a little applause when I am through. If the song is bad. Give me applause too. This is a musical that was like, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein coming off the heels of all, all these like successful other musicals like Sound of Music and King and I. And often these were kind of exotic musicals, like they, they were taking place in far off places, even Oklahoma to some sense. To the extent that it's like Oklahoma is its own country or something, but like throw you into another place. And Flower Drum Song, that place happened to be Chinatown. There could be fear that this is going to be you know, another problematic de depiction of Chinatown, but they did a few things right. Um, one is they adapted it from a novel written by a Chinese American, uh, by C.Y. Lee, the late C.Y. Lee. And, and so automatically you had a perspective of the different kinds of characters in Chinatown beyond just the usual stereotypes. Father, they don't do things like that over here. Here a man picks his own wife. 
Now, while you are still my son, you will do as I tell you. <coughs> there, you have given me a coughing spell. I'm sorry, my father. Strange how your cough comes over you and you do not get your own way. But every time I speak to the boy, I can I'm discuss all... that later, my father. I've got to go. Stop. Um, so you had a whole family, and every, and all the family members sort of had their own desires, and uh, and, and I mean, there's a standard like a, a tension between being traditional and being modern. So some of that was like overly familiar. But I'm I'm always thinking about like the scene where these like young Asian Americans are just dancing in their like baseball uniforms. Hi, Dad. Are we gonna play baseball? Hey, what's the matter with you? The more I see of grown-ups, the less I want to grow. The more I see what they have learned, the less I want to know. And yet we've got to all grow up, there's no place else to go. I wonder why we're all so poor and they got all the dough. What are we going to do about the other generation? Something about it that just feels like kind of all-American in a way that these depictions had not allowed for before. So all-American, yeah, it was still also like an all-Asian cast and very coded as Asian. But to me, this was this was a, a crack in what seemed to be impenetrable. We know we could improve them quite a lot. But they will never let us. Okay, I need to take one more quick break, and then I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Brian Hu. And to take us into this break, I have Ryan Bradford of Awkward San Diego with a slightly dark cold turkey. Hey, everybody. My name is Ryan Bradford from Awkward SD. Uh, and the thing that we need to quit is fridging. So fridging is a term used for when a woman's assault or death drives the narrative of a movie. You see this a lot in action in horror flicks where the main character, usually a man, seeks revenge for the death of a loved one. The word fridging is shorthand for the term women in refrigerators and is based on a 1994 Green Lantern comic where the hero comes home to find his girlfriend dead in a ref refrigerator. Uh, you've probably seen this lately in the film Mandy. Um, but the reason we need to stop this is because we need to quit reducing women characters to narrative motivators. Thanks, Ryan, for that unique cold turkey. I'll be right back after this short break. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. And we're back with more of Cinema Junkie's exploration of Asians on screen. And were there any other kinds of heroes that popped up along the way? Even if they might have been supporting characters in a film where, you know, the lead was white, but did you see some moments where, yeah, they're making a little bit of progress? Is it too early to talk about Bruce Lee? I mean, for me, Bruce Lee is is that, right? Uh, I mean, like, he's not a supporting character either. He's the star. He is. You can't take your eyes off him. Introducing the incredible heroics of Bruce Lee. Every limb of his body is a lethal weapon against an army of men, the most sensual of women, and the most savage of beasts. Bruce Lee comes with an asterisk in that his films are not set in the United States. I mean, they're actually set all over the world, right? You have like Thailand and Italy, 
Well, like, he becomes a hero to Asian Americans and to like oppressed people everywhere <laughs> because his films are often about fighting against power. And so even though he doesn't satisfy as an Asian American character on the screen in the way that like the characters in Flower Drum Song do and then later, later films might, but suddenly you had quite clearly the hero on the screen. Bruce Lee was like as powerful a like superheroic kind of cinematic figure as like a James Bond or something. And the fact that everybody noticed, it wasn't like just the Asian American community saying, hey, like, like one of ours is on the screen because Bruce Lee was born in the United States, spent a lot of his formative years kind of between Hong Kong and the United States. This was probably the first taste of real Asian American superstardom, if you might call it that, in the um, kind of sound era of, of film history. My last name is Lee, Bruce Lee. I was born in San Francisco in 1940. I'm 24 right now. And you worked in uh, motion pictures in Hong Kong? Yes, uh, since I was around six years old. And when did you leave Hong Kong? 1959, when I was 18. Well, and he's an interesting case, too, because he's someone whose stardom was kind of imported from Hong Kong. I mean, he didn't get to make his first big splash on the screen through a Hollywood studio going like, oh, you'd be a great action hero. He had to kind of prove himself somewhere else and get re-imported. And then his films were dubbed into English and marketed to an American audience. So it's this interesting case of kind of like, I have to go away <laughs> to come back and, and prove myself an on-screen hero in the United States. Yeah, so so maybe it is worth thinking about like what his Hollywood career was like before he went to Hong Kong because it's exactly what you were saying before. Like he was a supporting character. Like he was not the Green Hornet. He was Kato. What's the plan? Well, I have to play it by ear. Who knows what they have planned for us? It's not good. We know that. And so his his Hong Kong trajectory then perhaps marks him as like as an anomaly. Like I mean, who, which Asian American stars get to go back to Hong Kong and have a career and then come back? At least in this period, he happened to have connections in Hong Kong. He was actually a child star in Hong Kong for a few years too, so that helps. And it just happened to be that at that time, Hong Kong needed a star like Bruce Lee. Its own like martial arts like per, like factory system was just taking off because of Shaw Brothers and and Bruce Lee became such a, like a great addition to the competition for like innovation in martial arts. So everything just happened perfectly that allowed that to happen. And he happened to come back to the United States at the time when Hollywood was like, all right, we need to change our formula too, because we're not doing that well. So the right environment allowed somebody to break from decades of stereotypes. Um, so so if, as an anomaly, it's sort of like, is this replicable? Um, and maybe that's why it's taken us so long for us to find another Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was unique, and he became this very heroic action hero that we saw. But then you have somebody like Toshiro Mufuni, who gained his stardom in Japan working with Akira Kurosawa. But he came over to the United States and made a number of films. You have my word. I will not charisma until you say. Don't take it so hard. I think you're one hell of a man. I think you were one son of a bitch. And if he didn't become like really this huge star, I feel like he was sort of this point of creating sympathetic Asian characters on screen and just starting to get some dimensionality. Still stereotype, but at least like every now and then you got a little hint because he was such a great actor 
that it started to create these more sympathetic Asian representations on screen through Hollywood movies. But this is definitely a case where Toshiro Mifune had a secret weapon, and that was Akira Kurosawa. If you are being directed by one of the great directors in the history of cinema, who knows how to bring out the character in you, but also like the charisma, like and it's sort of kind of like macho charisma, sometimes even a tortured mas masculinity, that you're just groomed to know how to act well. Like if you, like all these Asian American stars like trying to make it in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, if you, all you're playing are sidekicks and like if you're, if you're playing the help, right? How often are you getting opportunities to really stretch your acting ability? So 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 these actors who come from Asia, they've developed they they're in all kinds of genres. They get to play leads, they play supporting characters. They know how to act as a result. They've gotten the opportunity. And so it's, it shouldn't be surprising that it's someone from Asia who's able to come to the United States and then have that kind of multidimensionality. And do you see the changes that started to come in Hollywood? Was that coming kind of internally from Hollywood or does it eventually come from independent films? I know we're making a leap in time here, but to more independent films like Wayne Wang's Chan is Missing. This mystery is appropriately Chinese. What's not there seemed to have just as much meaning as what is there. The murder article's not there. The photograph's not there. The other woman's not there. Chen Hung's not there. Nothing is what it seems to be. I guess I'm not Chinese enough. I can't accept a mystery without a solution. Where you're kind of finding success out of the mainstream of Hollywood and Hollywood going like, whoops, wait a minute, maybe we can make some money off of that. Well, yeah, so, I mean, it helps the case that Hollywood was struggling. Um, at, at least, like, this is the end of the studio era. They Back then, they could just do whatever they want, right? Like, they, they own the stars, basically. They own the theaters. They could take chances or, or not take chances and succeed either way. But by the 1970s and the early 80s with Chan is Missing, Audiences are also realizing, okay, we, there, there's competition in Hollywood. And, and so out of that circuit comes a, a new batch of filmmakers who are kind of like, I, I'm going to do things our way. And of course, this is also a time of counterculture. And so you have audiences who are just a little hungrier for something that is an alternative to being square and just watching Hollywood films all the time. So yeah, so there was something in the industry itself that was allowing for this new movement. And this new movement was it's tied to like the rise of film schools, the rise of independent media collectives, and or maybe sometimes informal collectives that were happening in places like New York City and San Francisco and LA, where you, if, if you have like a, a alternative way of making movies, you can find like-minded people and get together and make it on your own. And so in that kind of moment, a director like Wayne Wang can come out and say, you know what, I, I kind of want to speak to the Hollywood stereotypes, including the Charlie Chan films. I mean, this film is called Chan is Missing. I've already given up on finding out what happened to Chan Hung. But what bothers me is that I no longer know who Chan Hung really is. The problem with me is that I believe what I see and hear. If I did that with Chan Hung, I'll know nothing because everything is so contradictory. Here's a picture of Chan Hung, and I still can't see him. I, th I think in s saying like, you know, we grew up with a certain image of Asians on the screen. It's our turn now. And now that we have the technology, the ability to do this, let's see where we can, what we can do that they never could have done. Does someone like him moving into the Hollywood system with something like Joy Luck Club, or you've got a Justin Lin moving into the Hollywood system with a Fast and Furious series? Ready. Set the... Go! 
call drifting. What do you mean, drift? The cars are lighter. The tires are slick. When you drift, if you ain't out of control, you ain't in control. Is it their independent success, do you think, that makes them attractive to Hollywood and allows them kind of this entry point? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, if Hollywood says long had certain barriers to entry for people who don't historically look like they make Hollywood movies, they're not going to get a chance. But the independent circuit has allows them, with its own sort of institutions like awards and film festivals that can crown certain people the new kinds of indie darlings, then Hollywood's going to notice. And not all of them will get a chance to make a commercial film. But sometimes they'll get a chance and sometimes they'll be really good at it. And then suddenly, so, so it's, it's a foot in the door. The in, indie world as a potential foot in the door. I mean, there's plenty of indie filmmakers who don't want to get in Hollywood no matter what and more power to them. But, but yeah, the indie world has allowed for this. And, and I think Dustin Cretton with Short Term 12 is also another example of this. And then what do you think the role of foreign directors, Asian directors, you know, from outside of the U.S., coming to the U.S. and making Hollywood films, people most notably someone like an Ang Lee, how do they impact kind of the representation of Asians? Do you think they bring something to Hollywood that allows for a different perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, Ang Lee is an interesting example because like when he was starting out, like in the 80s and early 90s, I mean, he was a struggling independent filmmaker like anybody else, like in New York City. But because of his Asia tie, specifically to Taiwan, he was able to get funding from Taiwan. And that's something that like Asian American directors might not have access to. He knows a language, he knows, he has those kinds of connections. And these are the studios in Taiwan that were like, that made the films that he grew up watching. So he, he knew about them. And, and I mean, it helps that like he went to NYU, so the Taiwan government's like, oh, you know, maybe I would invest in you. And, and so they have that extra kind of advantage that a Asian person kind of born and raised in the United States, like toiling as like second class in the system, would not have access to. I must think of someone like Mira Nair, who, like like comes from India and her first film like uh, Salam Bombay is an Indian film and then after with the success of that she's able to make Asian American films like Mississippi Masala. It's a long way from India to Mississippi. I'm a mix masala. Hot and spicy. Academy Award winner Denzel Washington. I ain't no saint. Just looking at her make me break into a sweat. Sweat all over the chicken. <laughs> you know what they say to me? Your brother thought he got himself a white chick. I love him. What about his family? You think I ain't good enough for your daughter, is that it? I never thought I would fall in love with you. Mississippi Masala, rated R. Um, so yeah, so the Asia side is extra kind of push. And think about it, like if Asian cinema already has a certain cachet on the international film festival circuit because of decades of directors like Akira Kurosawa and Satyajit Ray, that... If your films resemble those films, you may also have a certain advantage in getting noticed. And Miranar Angley immediately got noticed winning, like winning the Berlin Film Festival, for instance. At that time, like an Asian American director thinking about like, can I do that? Like, like it's, it may have seemed a little bit more strange or like or there's less of a precedent at least. And so maybe in some ways like these directors from Asia who are bridging the line between Asian and Asian American cinema, they became the precedent for later directors like Dustin Cretton and Justin Lin. And at this point in time, what do you see as kind of, what gives you the most hope about representations of Asians on screen in Hollywood films and where are kind of your greatest concerns? Yeah, I mean, like I've 
seen this happen through multiple cycles at this point, right? Like, like at moments where you're like, oh, I think this is going to be the turning point. And then it was just like, oh, wait, Joy Luck Club was just going to be the one. We're not going to have another Joy Luck Club. And, and like Better Luck Tomorrow by Justin Lin was another example of that. Like, wow, is, is this the moment where it all changes? Academic Decathlon was huge. The most prized entry on a college application. This was not like some community service club where you just walk in and sign up. You had to earn your spot. Hands by your side. Portugal! I didn't ask a question. Sorry. And then you realize, no, all those actors in Better Luck Tomorrow are still they're not getting roles. And so I've become a little bit jaded about these sort of turning points. But I guess I am I have to admit that things are better. And largely it's because of the larger pressure that's being put on Hollywood, not just by Asian Americans, but by African American audiences and critics, um, Latino critics, queer critics who are saying like, wait, what's going on with representation? So Asian Americans have benefited from this larger movement that's beyond just the Asian American community for representation. And because of that larger movement, Hollywood has had to have, they've had an internal reckoning and they all know we, we need to cast more Asian folks in, in our Hollywood films. And perhaps once in a while, we'll allow them to make a movie as well. Or if you are a big franchise, like, like, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're like, all right, maybe, maybe we should have an opportunity for, for Asian people. So maybe this wasn't going to be a thing in previous incarnations or less of a thing. That might actually be changed, right? And especially on the streaming networks, on, on Hulu, on, on Netflix, you, you are seeing shows that are being run by Asian Americans and are about Asian Americans. I did not see that before. Um, so I have to admit that that's a turning point. The problem is, is this just gonna be another case of like the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals? This year it's gonna be South Pacific. Next year it's gonna be the, the Swiss Alps. Um, the next year it's gonna be Oklahoma. Is it gonna be like that for Marvel? I, I'm still holding on to a little bit of cynicism. <laughs> But another kind of um, fear I have then is what's going to happen to the independent side? Because in the past, all of these Asian American filmmakers were, were they knew they didn't really have a route in Hollywood or it's going to be really rare. It's going to be hard to have a career in that. And therefore, if you really wanted to express yourself, the independent world was going to be your, your place. And you get to show your films um, on your own terms to your own communities. And you sort of lose that when you move into Disney world. <laughs> um, and so are we going to lose the independent side if there are indeed so many more opportunities, especially with streaming? Like to me, that would not be a good development if that was the case. Well, that kind of brings us back to Shang-Chi. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about it, and I think this is partially coming from Destin's ability to work on the indie scene and also to often give us very nice character relationships. But the main thing I liked was the relationship between the two main characters that just seemed so natural and enjoyable. And Aquafina is such a unique choice for what is essentially the romantic lead of the story. And I found that aspect of this to be really refreshing. Oh, I totally agree. Like those scenes are my, by far my favorite scenes in the film. Shang? Yeah. You change your name from Sean to Sean? Yeah, I don't. I wonder, yeah. how, I wonder how your father found okay, you. I was 15 years old, all right? What is, what is your name change logic? You go into hiding okay. and your name is Michael, you go on change it to Michael. That's, that's not what happened. It's, you, it's like, hi, my name's Gina. I'm going to go into hiding. My new name is Gina. I love that, like, Aquafina yeah. is sort of the romantic lead, but sort of not. Like, like, it's not very clear from the beginning. Like, are they just friends? Because in those moments, I'm thinking, like, how, wait, have we ever seen 
Asian American, um, Asian American man, and Asian American woman as friends in a Hollywood movie before, that they just like they they go to work together, they hang out at each other's houses. I don't know if I've ever seen that in a mainstream film, and that I, I did not see that coming, and it was so refreshing to see. Partly because they're so good at it, and you mentioned Destin, right? Like he he knows how to to, to stage scenes like that. And then you have these two actors, like ones from Kim's Convenience, Simu Liu. Aquafina is kind of—I mean, she's from her own little universe, but but they just they, they fit like they. It's so it comes. It feels like it comes so naturally to them. You don't feel the decades of this has never worked in the past, or can this actually be possible? You just feel like this has always been possible because Asian Americans have always been friends with each other. Men and women like have been friends with each other in the past. So refreshing to see, and like when there are all these like moments of like, hmm, can they be together? It's sort of like well. Asian Americans don't get that like Ross and Rachel moment of like friends can can friends also have be in a relationship like it, it, it was just so so nice to see and it reminded me of people I could have grown up with. Now because you have this wealth of knowledge about films, I wanted to ask you if you might suggest a list of films for people to watch and to give a context to Shang-Chi, but not in the sense of, oh, here are the Marvel films you need to see to understand where the superhero comes from, but more a sense of seeing the development of Asian images on screen that lead us to this point. Yeah, so weirdly enough, like when I was watching those scenes in San Francisco between Aquafina and Simu Liu's character, I immediately thought of the film Surrogate Valentine. I was next to wait in line To be your surrogate valentine I took a number and started with nine Ended in letters are going to find. Surrogate Valentine is a trilogy of films directed by Dave Boyle and Lin Chen. They star Go Nakamura, who is this like this down on his luck musician in California, and it's his relationships with friends and like potential lovers. And the film has just like a nice rapport of Asian Americans who, and the way they talk, like certain cadence to it, and a charm, and maybe charisma is going too far because he's supposed to play kind of a, a dopey character, but it just exudes life. And in those moments in Shang-Chi, what that seemed to be happening, like I thought of that film. And so if anybody who's like, I want to see more just Asian Americans hanging out, the, the Surrogate Valentine trilogy, I would highly recommend. Obviously, like Shang-Chi is not the first Asian American like superhero movie, and it reminds me of like this other kind of like, like I'm not saying I'm not saying a Shang Chi fan would like these movies, but uh, Patricio Giganelsa, who, who made a film back in the early 2000s called Lumpia. It's about like high school kids who you know have to have bullies, and they imagine the possibility of them being their own superhero selves. It was once written that in the midst of human rage and brutality. A hero shall rise from the ashes and restore justice and equality among all. Man, whoever wrote that must have been tripping. And they're thinking about it, like they're Filipino, and they're thinking about like, well, what would we fight with? And they have this whole ga running gag, like fighting like lumpia fighters and stuff like that. And as low budget a movie as you can imagine, uh, and and that's totally where the charm is, and like just very rudimentary special effects. Well, those filmmakers actually came back last year with a film called um, Lumpia with a Vengeance. More special effects now, but still that kind of low-budget charm. 
And with the desire to be super, this desire to like transcend the world that you live in, which is not always great. Like it, it, from beginning to end, you get a sense of that aspiration and and why it's so charming and, and why you want to root for them. So yeah, these films don't deliver the splash of a Marvel film, but how can any independent filmmaker compete with, with that kind of like visual dazzle? And so in the absence of that, like, um, where can you find the heart of it, though? Does the heart of these superhero movies still exist elsewhere? So the independent realm isn't just, you know, like arty movies. It's also these kind of low-budget movies that are wondering, if I had the luck of a Dustin Cretton and had a chance to make this movie, what might it look like? Uh, so I would encourage people to, to check out those movies as well. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about Asian representation on screen. Thank you, as always. That wraps up another edition of KPBS Listener Supported Cinema Junkie. I urge you to check out the companion podcast on this month's theme of Asians on Screen, where I speak with Shang-Chi director Destin Cretton. Not only does he discuss the making of the film, but he provides amazing insights into how a filmmaker can challenge himself as an artist. And remember to check out Cinema Junkie Presents Geeky Gourmet, where I show you how to make food themed to each podcast. The videos are available on the KPBS YouTube channel. Once again, I'd like to acknowledge the talented folks who help make Cinema Junkie happen. Podcast coordinator, Kinsey Moreland. Technical director, Rebecca Chacon. And director of sound design, Emily Jankowski. Coming up next, the theme is spies. From the Cold War world of John le Carré to the latest installment in the impressively successful James Bond franchise. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.